You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast. Keep up the good work. I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. Attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. Three, two, one. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. For this week's episode, we have an excerpt from one of the live politics Q&A sessions that we're holding each Wednesday at 6.30 p.m., If you would like to participate in one of these live events, go to our website, potholeproblempodcast.com, to get registered and find out what the Zoom link is. These occur each Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific time, and you can watch, listen uh, without asking any questions, or you could ask questions. This week's episode is an excerpt from the first Q&A, and I take a couple of questions from the same listener on a related topic, and rather than talk about it, I'm just going to get right into it. Dr. Millett, I wonder if you could shed some maybe historical information. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm frightened by the turn of the Supreme Court, how that might bolster one of the two parties and make it more powerful and, and make permanent dystopian decisions for our country. And I don't know if the Supreme Court has ever been so of the mind of one party as it is today. And maybe you could shed some light on how you think that will impact the two-party system. It absolutely has been as one-sided as it is today. It just happened to be the other side. The Democratic Party from the 30s until the 70s dominated Supreme Court appointments. And that era, and particularly the era from the mid-1950s to the late 1960s, when Earl Warren was the chief justice, even though he was appointed by, he was a Republican and he was appointed by a Republican president, he actually, it was like the greatest bait and switch in in American political history. He turned out to be probably the most liberal chief justice and definitely one of the more liberal justices in the court. The, The Warren court represented a massive transformation in the way the Supreme Court interpreted the Constitution in terms of expanding civil liberties, uh, enhancing protections for individual rights, strengthening criminal defendants' rights, reducing the power of states to, to do things that didn't align with national standards about equality and liberty. The thing that's sometimes challenging to do is to imagine If you were a Republican in the late 1950s and early 1960s, you must have just thought it was Armageddon, that the Supreme Court was changing everything 
And why was it doing that? Well, because there'd been nothing but Democratic presidents since 1932 with a, with a very brief stint for Eisenhower, and he got to appoint a couple of justices, but not nearly enough. And then there was eight more years of Kennedy and Johnson. And so you must have just thought like, oh, the world is going to hell because the Democrats have captured the Supreme Court. And then like, you know, you, you know, you get, uh, this is after Earl Warren was, was gone and the court was already starting to move back towards more centrist, but you get Roe versus Wade, for example, and you're, you're like, suddenly let's you know you believe that abortion is murder you believe that life starts at conception the supreme court has now authorized widespread murder from your perspective that must have been emotionally catastrophic spiritually catastrophic to people who who felt that way of this i would say of a of a similar order to how a lot of people who are in in favor of reproductive rights feel today it feels catastrophic that the court is on the brink of uh, reversing Roe versus Wade. It feels catastrophic that states like Texas and Mississippi are putting into uh, place these very draconian uh, restrictions on abortion. And I have those feelings too. Like I'm a very strong supporter of reproductive rights, but I try to remember what it must have felt like in 1973 to a person who believed that life began at conception and that basically these nine, you know, it was seven to two rulings, these seven democratically appointed justices who were there for life, who were unaccountable, had decided that it was okay to murder millions of babies. And I, and I put that all very strongly just because that's what's required for me to, to activate that kind of historical imagination. What happened with the conservative movement starting in the early 60s and definitely enhanced by Roe versus Wade was conservatives who saw what was happening under the Warren court and who saw what they thought was this catastrophe in in changing court doctrines, they realized what they had to do. They had to, one, win presidential elections. Two, they had to make sure that there were rising lawyers and judges who had been trained in a way that would orient them towards a different type of jurisprudence. And they looked at law schools and and they saw that law schools were full of liberal law school professors. They were full of Democrats. They were full of people who liked what was going on in the Supreme Court. And they were training a new generation of lawyers who would train a new generation of lawyers. They looked at that and they said, we need to work in a very powerful, concerted and long-term way. The Federalist Society was founded uh, as a way of giving support to and training conservative lawyers and, and justices who had a different interpretation of the Constitution. Anton Scalia was a prominent poster child of the early Federalist Society. And increasingly, as conservative judges were more available to appoint, judicial politics became a bigger and bigger part of Republican presidential politics, such that many people over the last, certainly over the last 20 years, and I would say over the last 40 years, they vote for a Republican president almost entirely because of judicial appointments. It's less common in our lifetimes for people to vote for a Democratic president solely because they want liberal justices. And part of the reason for that is that the Democratic Party hasn't been playing presidential politics in a strongly judicial way because they were winning. And part of it was that liberals got complacent in the sense that like, okay, all of these precedents are locked in. And so we are going to look at, and you know, and I say liberals, but I really, I should mean moderates, the people who decide presidential elections. They were like, oh, there's lots of stuff going on. I'm going to choose a president based on a lot of different issues. That diversity 
of viewpoints about what a president should be for and should stand for has allowed the Republican Party, which has played a very strong game of judicial politics at the presidential level, to get to the point where we are today. There are an awful lot of people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 only so that he would put as many conservative judges in the Supreme Court as possible. And those people got exactly what they wanted. And it's very rare. One of the things in politics as a voter, it's very rare to get what you vote for. At best, you get a tiny little bit and a half measure. If you voted for George Bush, Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump for judicial appointments, you got what you were voting for. And that actually is tremendously satisfying. One of the things that is potentially brewing, and I've seen a lot of early rumbling about how this could be the thing that's coming, about the Texas law and about the Supreme Court and about the potential to have Roe versus Wade overturned, is that that's going to energize the pro-reproductive rights segment of our population. That's going to get people who would never have marched to march. It's going to get people who would sometimes vote for a Republican because they liked lower taxes and they would sometimes vote for a Democrat to say, well, we have to vote for a Democratic president every time because we need to get people on the Supreme Court who are going to move things in the other direction. I think that one of the things about being on top of political success for decades at a time is it creates complacency. And it also, more than that, it inspires your opposition to be really focused and attentive. There's no doubt in my mind that since the mid-60s, Republican intellectuals, Republican uh, elected officials, and uh, Republican campaign operatives have had their eye on what judicial politics could do for them across the board. One of the interesting things, too, is that in a way, Roe versus Wade provided a kind of a political cover for many conservative elected officials, because what they could do, they could vote for restrictions on abortion. They could vote for all kinds of restrictions on reproductive rights, knowing that the courts would strike them down and that therefore they could check that box with that group of voters who were really dedicated and cared about one thing, and they didn't have to live with the consequences, the real world consequences of that policy change. In political terms, if you can check a box without then having to live the consequences of that policy that you voted for, that's paradise. That's heaven. That is consequence-free, performative politics, and that helps. A lot of you know anti-abortion Republicans have had that kind of political cover. What is now going to probably happen is that if you're a Texas moderate and you are Christian and you are lightly sort of aligned with the idea of, you know, restrictions on abortion, but you're not so strongly committed to it. And maybe you're just like, well, I believe that life started at conception, but other people don't. And if if you are a, a sort of ideologically moderate Christian Texas voter who now knows a bunch of women who are not going to be able to get reproductive services, who now see families that are impacted negatively, communities where there's where there are all these unwanted children and you start to see that and you go oh that's not good then those are the people who are going to get dissatisfied with the with the ins it's interesting because i do think that is a decent chunk of texas republicans who are a little worried <laughs> that their success and i air quote that success their success is going to be their undoing. And Texas is trending demographically it's trending more towards being a swing state and more towards being purple so if 
there's demographic changes in Texas that are already leading the Republican Party to maybe be a little bit less solid in its support for state legislative races. And then there's something that makes a decisive group of voters dissatisfied with those people who are in power, they could be in trouble. This is where my historical sort of scope also moderates my optimism, which is it could be decades. If you hated Roe versus Wade and Roe versus Wade is overturned tomorrow, you waited 48 years for success. You waited half a century and not waited, but worked. Some of the people who laid the foundations for the conservative majority on the Supreme Court have been dead for decades. You know, any of the people who founded the Federalist Society and who pushed for these things, most of them are dead. And so part of what happens with this kind of dynamic is that it sets a new normal. And then if you don't like that new normal, you have to work your ass off over the course of many, many years to try to get back to victory. That's not a very, you know, like for anybody who wants to see the Supreme Court return to being a liberal institution, that's not great news. <laughs> that no one wants to wait 48 years to return to the kind of rulings that we got used to for half a century. Part of why it feels so catastrophic is because we've all gotten used to what life is like in a country that Earl Warren delivered to us. We've lived in Earl Warren's America for a really long time. Many people have despised Earl Warren's America, but for those people who loved Earl Warren's America and it's going away, it's also so unfamiliar. It's kind of scary. Like, what will it be like? We don't even know what it will be like. I was five when Roe versus Wade was, was ruled, so I don't know what it's like to live in a country where women, in order to get abortions, have to travel and possibly can't even do it. I don't know what it's like to live in a country where women feel like their choices, their life choices, are heavily determined by political officials who they have no control to get rid of. I don't know what that's like. It might be worse than I anticipate. It might not be as bad. Part of that, we don't know what it's like, is what makes it seem even more catastrophic and even scarier. It's difficult to try to imagine the depth of pain that pro-lifers felt in 1973. It gives me compassion for the half century that they had to wait and work. It doesn't make me agree with them, but it gives me compassion for their spiritual suffering and their political toil. It also gives me respect for the political operatives who were patient, dedicated, focused, and were able to make this happen. So I don't particularly like the direction the Supreme Court looks like it's going in, personally, politically, but I understand that it is, in fact, a result of a long-term political program that, you know, in order to fight against it, will take a long-term concerted political program. Democrats need their own version of the Federalist Society and their own version of amplifying judicial politics at the presidential level to the point where it's like, it doesn't matter whether you like Joe Biden or not. He's going to appoint liberal judges, so vote for him. That's not a thing Democrats are used to thinking. That's not a thing that moderates who are reproductive rights leaning are used to thinking. It's just like, okay, I'm in favor of reproductive rights, but I, I'm going to vote for the Republican because I like some of the economic programs they have. That kind of moderate voter who swings back and forth based on economic issues could be, in the coming decade, could be thinking reproductive rights more frontally. And, and, and I would say that's particularly true for anybody who remembers older voters who do also remember what it was like before Roe versus Wade, when abortion was illegal in lots of places, who, who go, I don't want to go back to that kind of country. So there's potentially a lot of motivation that's going to result from this. You're listening to the Pothole Problem podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. 
If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. I do take issue with one term that you mentioned. I think it's an oxymoron to say Republican intellectual. Well, you're not alone in that. It is, I would say, an increasingly rare breed. Part of it is that the idea of the anti-intellectual is strong, has always been strong in certain quarters of American culture. This goes way back, right? There's there's a strong anti-intellectualism streak, a distrust of elites, a distrust of experts. It's in a way, it's connected to what has made our country so liberty loving is that we don't trust other people uh, and we don't like other people to, to get on their high horse and be like, well, I know better than you. So if you are a Republican intellectual, you will do what you can to hide it because it doesn't play well with the kind of people who support the Republican Party. Democrats would do well to hide some of their intellectualism better than they do because it is disconcerting to a lot of people. And I'm a college professor and that's all I've ever been and a writer. And so I'm, I'm an intellectual and I try not to flaunt it because one, you can slide into pomposity. It's very easy when you know a ton of stuff to think that anybody else who knows less than you is an idiot and should just listen to you and not argue back, right? It's very easy to slide into that. And it's very difficult to not slide into that. I've, felt, I've fought a lifelong battle against my knee-jerk reaction. Like, oh, you just, you just don't know. The more I know about politics, the bigger the gap between what I know about politics and what everyone else that I'm around knows, that doesn't mean that I'm right. Having expertise and having, and having a lot of experience at thinking through politics can make you think that you're right. And that's, I think, a, a natural human foible, that when you're successful at something, you think that you're just right. It is, I think, the whole anti-intellectualism thing that helps Republicans get elected. It makes it challenging to be a Republican intellectual because you have to hide it. You have to find ways to express your probably very complex ideas in extraordinarily simplistic ways. Intellectually, that's a great challenge. Like, okay, I have this very complex picture of what makes the universe and the political world tick, but I don't have the 10 hours to explain it to people and they might not have the patience or intellectual capacity to understand it. How do I get that across in a way that is totally not oversimplifying, but that is effective? I mean, I've kind of slid away from your comment, but this is part of what the challenge of being a professor is and of being a public intellectual of any kind. How do you promote inherently complex ideas that can't really be explained in a short period of time? How do you promote them in a short period of time? We're 50 minutes now into this one-hour Q&A, and I've barely touched the surface of any of the stuff that I would love to talk about. If I were on television, I would have already 45 minutes ago been done. I would have gotten five minutes to say whatever amount of stuff that I've said to you guys to say that. So anti-intellectualism is actually, it's, it's kind of a reality for any political operative, whatever their party is. How do you take good, complex ideas and make them accessible to people who don't have your experience 
and quite frankly, don't want to necessarily put in all the time to learn all the stuff that you've already learned, how do you have an influence on those people? Republicans, I think, have done a better job at figuring out how to speak plainly to the people than Democratic intellectuals have done. Now, I think some of the way they figured that out is that they speak in the language of raw emotion and negative emotion. And human beings are much more susceptible to emotional manipulation than we are to rational manipulation. And negative emotions are more powerfully motivating than positive emotions. It's easier to make somebody hate you than it is to make somebody love you. It's very easy to turn love into hate and very difficult to maintain love. One of the, I think, things that Democrats are trying to learn is how do we speak powerfully to people to motivate them to support our ideas without playing on fear or with playing on fear but doing it in as unmanipulative a way as possible? And I think that that question, how to do that, is still far from being answered by people who are in favor of promoting liberal ideas. And I, and I think that it goes back to human emotion. You know, if, if you are a conservative and you want things to not change, people like things to not change. We crave certainty. If we have a feeling that somebody is helping the world to not change, even though the future is uncertain, the sun is not necessarily going to rise every single day. And as the pandemic has shown us, things could just blow up all of a sudden in a way that like transforms our lives. But the more uncertain the world does seem to us, the more we might crave certainty. And so to speak a message that is, I'm going to protect the way things are, that's a powerful message to a lot of people to say, I'm going to change the world to make your life better and I promise it's not going to make it worse. That's a harder thing. That's a harder promise to make because you can't promise that your proposal that has not had, uh, has not turned into reality yet is in fact going to make people's lives better. And so people are naturally distrustful of change and of proposals to go big, even when it seems like those proposals are specifically designed to help the very people who are resisting them. I'm doing this for you. You are going to, it's like, well, one, don't do things for me. Let me do things for myself. That's a very American attitude. But two, how do I know it's going to work? How do I know it's not going to just bankrupt the country? How do I know it's not going to just have unintended consequences that make things even more uncertain, that make me even less powerful and even more vulnerable and even, even less secure in my lifestyle and in my children's future? Like, how do I know? You're telling me to trust you. If you're a change agent of any kind, you always have a harder job than a conservation agent who wants to keep things the way they are. And I think that that's a, that's a piece of human nature that it doesn't automatically stop change. Obviously, the world is constantly changing and the human civilization has progressed in many, many ways. But it does make the job that change agents have more challenging. To think that two opposed political ideologies have uh, essentially an equal task, I think, is to misread the way that humans respond to different sets of ideas. Change agents always have a bigger, a, a bigger task to fulfill because of that. That's an unproven assertion, but I think that it speaks to what we've seen of human nature and of American politics for, you know, for my entire life. Well, that's the episode for this week. If you are interested in participating in one of the live politics Q&A sessions that this episode has been taken from, go to potholeproblempodcast.com to find out the information. Basically, it's every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific time, and everybody is welcome and invited. All questions, particularly ones that are plaguing you about what's going on right now or that have been plaguing you for a long time about the direction of American politics or really anything. In the meantime, until you hear the next episode or log on to one of the live Q&A sessions, thank you for listening.